I just uh, want to say on behalf of our whole congregation, Ron, it is so good to see you. We have been praying for you for months and months, and I know this has been a long ordeal, but what a joy to see you here today. Thank you. Praise God. Amen. And, uh, and, and I just want all of you to know, you know, when, when things are not going well in your life, <clears throat> And you're not able to be here. We're praying for you. And we remember that faithfully. And um, that's part of what being a church family is all about. Well, I'd like you to turn with me in your Bibles this morning to Ephesians chapter 4. And uh, I want to continue this morning talking with you about the state of the church as we are at the beginning of 2009, we're almost in the middle of the first quarter now, hard as that is to believe, but we're focusing on what, what is the church facing, where, where do we stand as a church, and where is the evangelical church in America today, what are the struggles that we face, what are we dealing with? We've talked about in previous Sundays the importance and the significance of the body of Christ, the family, being a loving, intimate community. The necessity of loving each other deeply and of loving Jesus Christ supremely. We're different people. We come from different backgrounds. We have different personalities. We're of different cultures and different races. And we come together in this place we call the church. And Jesus said, the way that people will know that you're my disciples is how you love each other. That is the one unmistakable mark of a Christian, is how we love one another. And the church is in danger of losing that. Because everybody's busy, and everybody's got things to do and places to go, and we're all trying to survive the the madness and the craziness of our society. Um, Traveling the last two weeks has reminded me we're becoming increasingly more rude. I'm just amazed at how people uh, just care less and less for one another, and I'm not... I'm not downing humanity and, and saying, you know, everybody out there is a jerk, but it's amazing to me at how little we're caring for each other. I absolutely almost got run over by a cleaning person at O'Hare, cutting a diagonal across the, the thoroughfare, and I was walking with, you know, two bags in tow on the wheels and literally had to stop and divert to keep from getting hit by a cleaning cart. And she was just intent on where she was going. And, uh, you know, driving is like that. And, and, and we feel that tension and we feel the pressure and the economy is not so great. And, and everybody's feeling that stress. And the, the consequence is that it tends to pull us apart. And we have to re- remind ourselves of the importance and the significance. The writer of Hebrews said, of all the more assembling yourselves together as you see the day approaching. Because the closer we get to the return of Jesus Christ, the crazier this world's going to get, 
and the more important it's going to be for us to come together and to be in assembly and to love each other and to care for one another. This is the oasis. This is the place of rest. This is where we get the nurture and the encouragement and the support to keep going in the day-to-day. If we don't do this, we're going to be in trouble. So we've talked about that. Another trend that is facing us, oddly enough, is kind of like what I've just been describing overboard in the other direction. George Barna has described it in his book, Revolution, as the increasing dislike by a younger generation of the church as an organization. And he commends that and and hails it as a welcome change from organized, institutionalized church. The organic church movement, to some extent, has that flavor. The emergent church, the concept that we can just be the church wherever we are, whoever we are, get together in little groups and clubs here and there, and uh, kind of, you know, have coffee together and talk about Jesus and talk about the Bible. And that's, that's the New Testament church. That's how the New Testament church did it. They just got together in people's living rooms, uh, a half a dozen or a dozen or 20 people here and there, and that was the church. And there is a disparaging uh, uh, a dislike in that emerging community for order and authority and leadership and uh, people who hold offices and positions. This is being rejected as not being characteristic of the Scriptures. And the problem with that criticism is, so much of it is valid. You know, as I stand up here and talk to you this morning, one of the struggles that I have in talking to you about the importance of the organized body of Christ is that much of the criticism that is leveled against the organized church in America today is legitimate criticism. We're focused on our programs. We're focused on our power. We're focused on our budgets. We want to build our institutions. So many congregations are all about themselves, and so many pastors, I hate to admit it, because I'm speaking of my own colleagues, not necessarily the close, intimate ones that I have in this community, but across the country. So many pastors are all about them and building up themselves and maintaining the institution for their own sake. I was thinking just this week, if you have a desire for power, in fact, one of the, one of the persons uh, that I was talking with this week out in Colorado Springs brought this up and it's, it's kind of amazing. Where can a young person go right out of college with a bachelor's degree, 22 years of age, and have the title of chief executive officer, CEO, senior pastor, chairman of the board, in charge of a community of saints, and have all of that kind of authority 
and leadership and power right out of college in a church of whatever size they go to. Where, what other organization on the planet is that possible? And that happens to many, many young people. And some have matured well and do well, and some fall on their noses, and some feed their egos. And some never get out of that mentality. And as a consequence, the church has many people who are looking for a grandstand. But likewise, in the organized church, there are not very many small communities where an ordinary person in town, if they, if they have a little bit of money and a little bit of uh, uh, drive to them, and they have a wrong spirit, they can go to a church and find a place of power and control and dominance and a place where they can shine as a big fish in a little pond. Church affords people like that. As John wrote to the church at Ephesus, so-and-so who loves to have the preeminence. And so much of the criticism that is leveled against the organized church has validity. And so it makes it difficult to talk about. Because when you begin to to analyze where the church is today, we have problems. But the solution, to use the old colloquialism, is not to throw the baby out with the bathwater. The tendency is to want to pitch the whole thing overboard and and just start over. And the concept is if we just go back to no structure, no organization, no leadership, and we just sit around the living room and talk about Jesus, we'll get back to the pure church. And I want to suggest to you this morning that whenever we're faced with those kinds of dilemmas, the solution is not to try to sort it out in our own mind, but the solution is to go to the Scriptures. And to ask ourselves the question, what does the Bible have to say about the subject? What does the Bible teach? And the Scripture always has the answer for us. And as we consider what was the church like in the New Testament time, I want us to look at Ephesians chapter 4. My focal verse this morning is verse 11. And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. In this passage... Paul is writing to the church at Ephesus and he's saying Christ has given to his church certain offices, certain people to equip the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. And those people are called apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastor teachers. I want to begin this morning by talking about an understanding of the authority and order in the New Testament church. Structure, order, and leadership 
in the living and organic church of Jesus Christ, his body. The church is unique. It is not just an organization. It is also an organism. Many institutions out there are organizations. They have structure, order, and authority. 3M Company is an organization. IBM is an organization. Apple Computer is an organization. It's not an organism. It doesn't have life outside of its product. And it doesn't have any kind of structure outside of its job descriptions and its ordered system of, of operation. It's an organization. Congress is an organization. The executive branch of government is an organization. But it doesn't have a life of its own. The church of Jesus Christ is unique in that it is both an organization and an organism. We have life in and of ourselves. We are all, the scripture says, filled with the Holy Spirit of God, a life-giving spirit. And so we are not just an organization of structure, we're a living entity. And the Apostle Paul uses, not by accident, the metaphor of a body to describe the church. Actually, I think it's more than a metaphor. You know, from, from a grammatical standpoint, from an analytical standpoint, when you say the church is a body, it's, it's metaphoric. But I think that there's something more intrinsically involved here in the life of a fellowship that makes it more than just a picture. It's actually describing a supernatural reality that we are one body. And in that body, we have a head. Now, when I came to church this morning, I brought my head with me. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad that I'm wearing my head this morning? Sometimes I think I've left it somewhere, but usually I have it attached to my shoulders. And, and my head is currently giving orders to the rest of my body. One person one time said, if you tied my hands, I couldn't say a word. I'm kind of like that. I use my hands. What is it that makes my arms work when I'm running my mouth? It's my head giving direction to my hands. How am I able to walk and talk at the same time? I'm even sucking on a cough drop. And I'm managing all of that simultaneously because my head is telling the rest of my body what to do. I have a head that is giving direction to my body. And that head contains a brain. And (laughs) some of you were wondering about that, weren't you? But I do have one. And that brain is connected to a nervous system that literally connects to every part of my organism. And you and I are connected to the head by the Holy Spirit of God who is like the nervous system in the human body that literally fills all in all and joins us to the head so that every single component of the body can get direct input from the head who is Jesus. We're all connected. 
to the head. And yet we all have unique responsibilities in the body. And so there is order in this body of mine, which is a living organism. And my head directs that. Furthermore, there are parts of my body that are specialized for different functions. I have a pulmonary system that does one thing. It sucks air in and extracts the oxygen, which bonds to the hemoglobin in my lungs. And it exhales and breathes out the carbon dioxide that is a byproduct of my metabolism. And all my lungs do are exchange air, in and out, in and out, all day long, even when I'm sleeping, my lungs are working to do one task in my body, to bring air in with fresh oxygen and to breathe out the waste products of the gases that I've used up. I have a heart that is designed as the core of a circulatory system that takes that oxygen that comes into my lungs and absorbs it into the bloodstream and delivers it to all the rest of my body, which is essential for life because I am designed by God in such a way that I metabolize in oxygen. And I have to have that. And there's a delivery system. Just like the nervous system, there's a delivery system that takes those red blood cells literally past every cell in my body to supply oxygen to every cell that I have. Now, if my heart got up one day and decided it wanted to suck air instead of pump blood, do you know what would happen? I would die. Because if you give the heart enough air, it's called an air embolus, and if you give it enough air, it will stop. It's just like a pump running out of prime. It comes down on nothing, and it quits working. It will not function. And if my lungs decide they want to circulate blood instead of suck air, guess what? I will drown and die. There is order in this organism that is divinely appointed by God to serve me so that the whole body can be healthy. It has a head, it has a nervous system, it has parts, and each individual part, according to Ephesians 4.16, each individual part has a function. And every one of us here this morning are part of, of an organism, but we're a different part. Each one of us has a different function. Each one of us is vitally connected to the head, from which we can receive direction, but also in which we have specialized functions. And I can't overemphasize how important that is. Because if you get up one day and decide you don't want to do what God's called you to do, this body is going to be sick. It's not going to be healthy. We're going to be in trouble. And we call that disease or injury or disability because some part is not doing what it was designed by God to do. 
and depending on the significance of that part to the body, we have to treat it or we're going to be in trouble. And so I want us to recognize this morning that even in the New Testament church, the very imagery that is used tells us that there is order and there is symmetry, there is organization within the natural living church of Jesus Christ. Every once in a while you hear Pastor Hector say, you know the language of heaven is going to be Spanish. But I think I know God's language. I mean, if you pressed me to the wall and you said, what language does God speak? You think it's Hebrew? You think it's Greek? What language do you think God speaks? I think God speaks math. I think that's his language. He speaks math. He speaks in a language of equation, in a language of order, in a language of harmony, in a language of consistency. And throughout the universe, as you Look at it. I'm not a mathematician by any means. I barely got through high school algebra. (laughs) So I can't claim to be a mathematician, but I've learned to appreciate math over the years. I wish I understood more of it. If I had it to do all over again, I'd take every math course I was offered. Because every time I have studied a system within the universe... I have seen the same kinds of mathematical imagery emerge over and over again. The God who hung the stars in space, the God that made my body, the God that designed the flowers, is a God who speaks in a language of order and organization and logic, and symmetry. That's his nature. And so for the church not to have order is ridiculous. We're designed by God to have natural order. But secondly, the concept of head can be used in a political or authority sense and not just a directive or natural sense. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 4, Peter says, And when the chief shepherd appears. And Paul reminds us in Ephesians that Christ has been given head over the church in terms of authority. So not only is there order in the body of Christ, but there is also authority in the body of Christ, and Jesus Christ is the head of the church in a political sense. He's the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He is the master, the director, the one who calls the shots. He is in charge. And so in that sense, He is also the head as the chief executive officer of the church. And by the way, 
He is the head of the church. I don't care what our constitutions say or how we're designed on a local level. A wise person in responsible leadership in the local church recognizes that at best I am an under-shepherd. Jesus Christ is the head of his church. He's the one in charge. And the only task I have in front of me as a leader, and the only task you have in front of you, is to find out the orders of the general, the one in charge. I need to know what Jesus wants to do, because he's the one who is in charge of the church. He's the head in terms of authority. But also, Jesus has given to the church people. In, in, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, it says that he gave some apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. Now, I think that last group, I, I wouldn't make a big deal out of this. It's not something I'd go to the mat over. But I think it's one office with a dual function. Because even the language of the Greek changes. When, when Paul writes this sentence in the original language of the New Testament in Greek, it says, some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers, not some as teachers. He, he puts that office together, the pastor-teacher. And these are gifts that Christ has given to his church at large. And when you look at those gifts, you see that apostles relates to the Latin word for missionary. The Latin translation of the Greek word apostolos is missionary. And we've gotten all confused with that over time, but God still calls apostles. They're, they're missionaries who are church planters. They go and establish the church where there is no church. That's the function of that office. The function of the prophet is to proclaim the word of God to his people as he gives that word to the church for life and for direction and for guidance. To, to declare, thus saith the Lord. It takes many different shades and colors, but the, the, the voice of the prophet is the voice that proclaims the word of God with with unction, with, with demand for obedience. Thus saith the Lord. The evangelist is one who is uniquely anointed by God to call people to faith in Christ. And that anointing that is upon the evangelist as they go from place to place is to bring people to Christ. All of us are called to be witnesses. Every one of us is called to be a witness. But God anoints certain people in the office of evangelist, whom He gives His Spirit for calling them, calling other people to Jesus Christ. And then He gives pastor-teachers, who at the local level provide shepherding and teaching for the local congregation. And then, in the New Testament, we read, that there are locally elders and deacons. I put in your outline deaconess. And the reason I did that is because of our English, the way we use the English. But actually, in the Greek, the office is deacon, 
But we know from our study of Scripture, and as I uh, exegeted Romans 16 for you, and other passages that women filled the office of deacon in the New Testament. And so, uh, when Paul comes in 1 Timothy chapter 3 to describe the office of deacon, he also talks about, in the feminine sense, those deaconesses who serve. People say those are deacons' wives. Well, so why aren't there elders' wives? You know, what's going on there? He's talking about deacons, both men and women, who serve the church in that capacity. And God gives these people, in the New Testament, He gives them elders and deacons in the local church. And then you remember from our study of spiritual gifts that God, by His Holy Spirit, gives to people gifts of leadership and administration. And I want to ask you very frankly, why would the Holy Spirit give someone the gift of administration if He didn't expect there to be an organization to administrate? The gift of administration is keeping things ordered and and the system operating smoothly. That's what an administrator does. And a leader leads. A leader calls the troops together and says, that's the hill we need to take. That leader gets direction from the Holy Spirit and inspires the people to follow the course of action and with the help of administrators, rallies the troops in an orderly fashion to take the hill. Now I ask you, why would Jesus in the New Testament give His church apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastor, teachers, elders, deacons, leaders, and administrators, if he didn't expect the church to be organized, ordered, and in some kind of system? The answer is he wouldn't. Even in the New Testament, the church was ordered. It had organization. It had membership. It had leadership. It had direction. Over the years, I've had some people say to me, I'm opposed to church membership because it's not biblical. And I kind of get a little frustrated by that after a while, frankly, because when you look at the New Testament, they knew who they were. Yep. <laughs> they, they knew who they were. They knew who was there. And if you were in the church at Ephesus and you decided to move to Corinth, and, and Tim back here was your... Uh, leader shepherd of the house church that you attended in Ephesus, and you decided to move to Corinth, he would say, as Carissa's getting ready to, to move out of Ephesus to Corinth, he would write a letter and say to the elder at the church at Corinth, I want to commend to you my sister Carissa. She's been faithful and committed and a loyal servant in the church here in Ephesus, and I want to commend her to you in Corinth, receive her with open arms, and treat her the way we have treated her here, respect her and receive her as a sister in the Lord. They had membership. They maybe didn't go about it the same way, but they knew who they were. And when they moved from place to place, they took the letters of recommendation that commended them 
to the next community because that was important, particularly in a political climate where they were at risk of persecution. You wanted to know who was moving into church. You wanted to know who was coming to your fellowship. I love the story I heard that came out of China one time about a group, uh, the, a prayer group, men's prayer group that were meeting. There were five or six of them that were meeting. And, and then all of a sudden they started uh, being uh, just narrowly escaping raids by the police. And they realized that somebody in their group was a traitor. And so they got together the next time and they said, okay, next time we meet, we're not going to tell each other where we're going to meet. You ask God where we're supposed to meet. And the ones who show up are the ones that are on the Lord's side, and whoever's missing will be the traitor. And so the next time they met, they were all together except for one. They showed up at the same time in the same place. Isn't that cool? That's a true story. And the one that was the, the one that was the traitor was missing. You know, you want to know who the people are. There is a membership within the body. And so God gives us leaders to lead us. He gives us administrators to organize us. He gives us under-shepherds, pastor-teachers, and elders to guide us. And the Scripture says that these people are important because, first of all, you notice in verse 12, he gives these offices to the church to equip the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. We need this kind of leadership to build up the body of Christ, to equip the saints. If you have a group of young believers and none of them are maturing and there's no one to provide leadership, you're going to be in trouble. What did Jesus do? When He gathered his disciples around him, for three years he poured his life into twelve men very deeply and into a broader circle somewhat more loosely, but nonetheless they surrounded him. Because in the upper room on the day of Pentecost, there were 120 people gathered in a prayer meeting waiting for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. They were not novices. They were young, yes. The church had just been born, yes. But they had spent time with Jesus, the master teacher. They had heard him. They had listened to him. They had heard his teaching. And what does he say to them? When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, he will bring to your remembrance all that I have taught you. And what is the commission he gives them? When the Spirit comes upon you, as you go into all the world, you make disciples of others teaching them to observe all the things that I've commanded, and I'll be with you to the ends of the age. How does that work? From generation to generation to generation, leaders, teachers, trainers provide passing on the baton as they disciple and teach and train to the next generation. Friends, we need to recognize that however the church is organized, and that may differ from culture to culture. I, I think it was this group I said last week, I don't care if we get rid of all the chairs and sit on the floor. That makes no difference to me. 
If you wanted to go join the, the, the Church of Christ, the ones that sing a cappella and do away with all the instruments, that wouldn't necessarily be offensive to God. I would, I would miss it, but it doesn't matter. If you want to be an underground house church in China, who, by the way, the majority of them are pastored by women, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter whether you're meeting clandestinely, hiding out from the government that threatens the existence of the church, whether you're meeting uh, around tables with a mug of coffee and your Bible open at a round table on Sunday morning. I don't care how we do church. But this much I will tell you, if we are a New Testament church, we will have pastor-teachers. We will have elders, we will have deacons, we will have leaders, we will have administrators. There will be organization, there will be structure. People will have a role to play within the body of Christ. And those who have been given gifts of leadership and administration will organize that family in a meaningful way under the leadership of the Holy Spirit so that it can move as a coordinated entity because we are both an organization and an organism. And as the body of Christ grows, what did the Apostle Paul do as the church churches began to grow? He planted churches as he went along, and he came back through and appointed elders. Because as soon as the church was a few months old, they needed to identify the leaders who stood out who had caught it, who understood it, whom the Holy Spirit had given gifts of teaching and preaching and disciple-making, they needed to appoint them in leadership because the church has to have it. And any group of people that is just kind of hanging out in the living room talking about Jesus without any kind of guidance, with no clear leader, with no shepherd, with no structure, is, a, is, a, is an assembly that will eventually be in trouble. And one of the things I mentioned to you last week of the problems with the emergent church is that there's serious question amongst them about the deity of Christ. Among some groups. There's question among some groups about the existence of hell. There's question among some groups about the, the significance of sin or the necessity of blood atonement and cleansing. There's all this confusion as they sit around and talk about their experiences. Because, friends, if you have a group that does not have leadership anointed by God it will stray from this book into error in due season and before long will cease to be the church and instead become a cult or a heresy of one sort or another. Remember the hymn, Prone to Wander, Lord, I Feel It, Prone to Leave the God I Love. You know that song? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the 
God I love. Recognize that? Did you know that the writer of that hymn left the faith years after writing the song? We have it in us, prone to wander. What is it that that keeps us centered? What is it that keeps us focused? It is the leadership that God gives in pastor teachers and elders and and, and deacons and, and godly leaders who disciple and teach and train and hold us accountable to the Word of God in a broader context. Because if we don't keep being drawn back to this truth, we will go astray. I know some of you are getting concerned about the time. I only got through Roman numeral 1 the first hour. I'm stopping here. We're going to finish this up next week. <laughs> so don't get, don't get anxious. We're not going much further. God gives us leadership to teach us how to be the body of Christ. He gives us leadership. To, to, to guard us from heresy. And he tells us in that, and we'll get into this more next week, but he tells us in that the, the goal of leadership is not to lord it over the church. 1 Peter chapter 5 makes that so very clear. When Peter gives the instructions, he says, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight. How many of you got letters from your elders or deacons the last week? Can I see your hands? you get letters? How many of you did not get a letter? Okay, <laughs> I need to know who to talk to this afternoon. <laughs> because you're supposed to have received letters so that, that define for you, describe, this is your elder, this is your deacon. Why is that important? Because we care about you. And I have your letter on my desk. <laughs> you're mine. <laughs> but but we, we have those people that are identified. To say, this is, this is my elder, this is my... Why do we do that? Because we care about you. It's not to keep attendance and, you know, make sure you're toeing the line. It's because we want somebody paying attention if you get sick, if you get discouraged, if you get depressed and just can't face life, you know. We're living in times where that's happening to folks. You know, we want somebody that's noticing, that's praying for you, that's encouraging you, that's that's looking to see what is your giftedness? How do you fit in this body? Let me nudge you in that direction with encouragement. He says, not lording it over the flock, not under compulsion, And not as lording it over those allotted to your charge, verse 3, but proving to be examples. And I want to say to you, if if you're a leader here this morning, man or woman, if you're a leader here this morning, the Apostle Paul said to this same church, it's actually, it's actually pretty dramatic.
He says, be imitators of me, as I also am of Christ Jesus. That was not an arrogant statement. That was a statement of a man who knew that he had his eyes on Jesus Christ. And that although he was not perfect, and Paul was not perfect, he made mistakes. I'll get to that more next week also. He made mistakes that he himself wrote about in other places. But he was able to say to people, if you want to know how to live the Spirit-filled life, watch me. If you want to know how to have self-control, watch me. If you want to know how to be filled with loving kindness, watch me. If you want to know how to pray for other people, watch me. Watch me. As I follow Jesus, I want to model for you what it looks like. That's the call of leadership in the church, servant leadership. It's not to take up some whip and crack it with authority. It's to model before the church the Spirit-filled life so that other believers can see what it looks like. And follow the example. Leaders have a responsibility to lead spiritually. And it's not that we're going to do that without mistakes. It's not that we're going to be right all the time. But it's what God calls leaders to do. It's what God calls teachers to do. To explain and model the life that they're calling people to follow so that we can provide that leadership. So, friends, I want to encourage you this morning as you consider the church. The church is not just a living organism like a jellyfish. The church is a living body like a person with systems and order and organization and structure and function ahead Jesus Christ who directs the whole by His Spirit. And each one is called to play a specific role. And God gives us leadership and administration because the God who speaks math expects us to be organized. He is not the author of confusion, but he is a God of order and symmetry. And he calls us as his body to be that. Not in a static way, but in a living way, like the human body, to model for the world the beauty and the harmony of individuals functioning together as a whole bringing glory to his name. Father, I pray that as we consider the role of the church, that we would be willing to throw out the bathwater, but keep the baby. That we would be willing to change what is old-fashioned and out of date. That we would be adaptable to the needs of our times, without compromising the timeless message of eternity. 
but that in all that we do, that we would reflect the glory of the God who hung the stars in space, called order out of chaos when he created the world, the God who describes us as a living body with a head and individual members directed by the Spirit. Lord, give us the courage to face our failures and our weaknesses and our foolishness and stubbornness and to be willing to change But in the process, Lord, may we stay ordered by your Spirit in a body that has spiritual direction. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.